In 1824, Ludwig van Beethoven completed his final symphony, Symphony No. 9 in D minor. Universally considered Beethoven's greatest masterpiece, the piece and its composer played an integral role in the transition between the classical and romantic eras in Western art music. Beethoven's Ninth, also known as Ode to Joy, later fills the pages of Christian hymnals around the world as the song, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. This work of art, famous for its uplifting and hopeful melodies to congregations for centuries, stands in stark contrast to the tormented artist who created it. So now experience pianist Jay Hinson's modern take on a timeless classic.
Beethoven wrote and completed the Ninth Symphony in 1824, and it's universally considered to be his greatest work. In fact, many consider it one of the greatest compositions in the Western musical canon. Yet, why does no one argue that Beethoven wrote and composed this piece? Well, it's because we have the proof, right? We have the score. Randy today is addressing the question, is the Bible God's word? Randy will take you through a series of factual truths of why we believe, without question, that the Bible is God's inspired word. So please give your attention to Randy Pope. You know, I have a feeling that if Beethoven could have come back and witnessed this, he would have said, that was a lot better than the way I did it. So, really good. I always look forward to that one. That is a good one. Well, welcome to all of you. We're glad to have you here again today. I don't know how many of you are first-timers, but if you are here for the first time, I would highly encourage you, if you would, to go back and listen to our podcast, and you can get that on perimeter.org slash ifanswers, I-F-A-N-S-W-E-R-S. So uh, that would be a great uh, help to kind of understand where we are and what we're doing. I will give this bit of uh, background to what we're doing. Uh, we're looking for a place, I think most of us that are in the searching mode of figuring out Christianity are looking for a place that is safe, enjoyable, and brief. And that's what we're trying to provide, a place to investigate the claims of Jesus. Now, in doing so, last week I made the comment that most people uh, who are theists, meaning they believe in God, if you're a theist, you do want to investigate. I'm just finding theist after theist says, yeah, I don't want to be on my deathbed and say I've never investigated the claims of Jesus if I think there's a 10% chance that Jesus could be who he claimed to be, God himself. And so it's just logical that we're, we're needing to find a place that we can do that and one that can be done briefly. It is my opinion that for there to be a good investigation, you have to look at at least a handful of questions and determine what you believe to be the answer to those questions. And then once you determine if you do or you don't believe the answers to these questions, as Christianity would suggest, then you want to be, you want to be in line with whatever your answers are. For instance, if, if I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, as I said, I think a person would be a fool not to follow him. If we thought that he was not who he claimed to be, then we would be a fool to follow him. So we need to find a place to investigate. What are those questions? Four questions, I think, that are the most critical questions. Number one, how can Christians believe that the Bible is God's word and that it's without error? I mean, think about it. First of all, how could it ever have been? And if it was, how does it remain in a condition that could be accepted as accurate? After these many, many, many years, handed down, generation after generation after generation, seriously. How can Christians believe that at all? That's question number one. Question number two is the question of how can Christians believe that all people, including more religious people outside of Christianity, deserve to be separated from God forever. That just doesn't, that doesn't square with logic. It just seems like that's unfair. Then the third question would be, of all the religious leaders that have ever lived, 
How can Christians say that this Jesus is the one and only way to find relationship with God? Now, that just seems to be awfully narrow. The last question, and I think only if you found merit in the answers to Christianity's uh, thinking about those first questions, you then want to ask, well, what does Jesus say is required to be in favor with God and to have life forever in heaven? What does he say is the answer to that? So we are, for these four weeks, beginning this week, we're looking at the first of those questions. By the way, next week, we'll be looking at what I think is the, is the most important of all questions. It really is. Because here's where most of us are going to have the hardest time, I think, looking at the data and understanding and embracing. And that is, how can Christians believe? How can Christianity believe? That all people, including more religious people outside of Christianity, deserve eternal punishment. And what's going to go right hand in hand with that one is, how can a loving, good God let so many bad, horrific things happen to good people who are gracious, kind, people that we look at and say, what a wonderful person, and look at the hell they're going through. If God is God, why does he allow that to happen? So we're really hitting the toughest of all questions, I think next week. So we'll look forward to that time as well. Now the three components to a morning together here. The first, after we introduce it as we have, I'm going to spend a few minutes addressing the question of the morning, as we'll call it. Number two, we're offering to each of you to, uh, to take one of these copies of the Gospel of John that are our copies that we've taken the Gospel of John and added questions in the margins. And then we're taking five chapters per week. There are 21 chapters, so the last week, obviously, there'll be six. But we're asking everybody to read through the five chapters, look at the questions. There's probably six, seven, or eight questions that you'll see in the margins throughout the five chapters. And just as you read the question, immediately across from the question will be where the answer is found in the text. And we would encourage you, use that to stimulate your thinking to understand what the Gospel of John is saying. And I'll go through and take some of the questions each week that I think are most pertinent to give you a better understanding of what's being said here. Then the third and final portion of our time will be an open question time. You can be asking your questions by text. You can ask them by email. And can we put those up? Uh, ask questions now. There's the uh, text number and the email. If God at perimeter.org and then 678-829-8879. So you feel free anytime during our talk here. Just be typing out a question, throwing it up. If you would, we would prefer that you would actually ask them from the audience. If you wouldn't mind us putting a microphone in your hand, that way anybody can hear the questions. It's looking online to follow up on this. Okay? So that's kind of how we're going to be doing this. Now... The question for the day, how is it that Christians can believe that a Bible written that many years ago could ever have been, and then even if it was to remain, an infallible word from God? How could we believe that? Well, I want to I share six realities that uh, I think make it reasonable to believe that the Bible is God's word. Now, I do not have it as my intention. I'm going to state this again and again. It is not my intention to try to persuade you or talk you in 
to believing what I believe and what Christianity believes. That's not my job. What I'm here to do is to give you a, a very appropriate representation of Christianity to give you data to help you to investigate the faith of Christianity. That's it. So my feelings don't get hurt. If you challenge and you say, I disagree with you, I think your answer stinks, I don't believe it all, I think this is a bunch, I go, well, good, I, I just helped you investigate. You can come to either conclusion that it is or it isn't the real faith. That's all we're trying to help you do. And I always say, hey, I can be wrong. Anybody can be wrong. None of us have perfectly put it together and have all the answers. So just use this as an opportunity to hear something that I think appropriately and fairly represents Christianity and then make your own decision, okay? So let me give you uh, six realities that I think might help you at least be convinced that Christians do not shelve their brains to believe that the Bible is God's word without error. So you've got an insert, or a, not an insert, but a, a piece of paper there that has the outline on it. I'm going to encourage you, uh, kind of follow the outline. I'm going to put oh, in a total of eight quotes up that will be helpful uh, to go beyond just what I'm saying. I don't like to read too much, but these, they're brief quotes, but I think they'll be helpful in the process. So utilize that kind of as an outline as we walk through this. Here's to be the first of six realities. The Bible's historic reliability, reliability. It is a reliable doctrine. Louis Marcus, he is uh, an apologist uh, for the, uh, actually, I'm sorry, he, he writes the apologies for the 21st century. This is what he says. He says, in order to substantiate the basic claims of Christ and the essential doctrines of Christianity, the apologist, that's somebody who is defending what they believe, need not prove the inspiration or inerrancy. Inspired means God breathed, inerrancy means without error, of the Bible. He need only to show the Bible to be reliable in its account of Jewish and Christian history. So, if you were to look at the the dates, places, people, and storyline of the Bible, you will find that they are incredibly accurate. That's just a point. It is a reality. Archaeological discoveries are proving over and over and over the realities of the Bible in terms of history, dates, and so forth and so on. Archaeologist William F. Albright, this is how he puts it. I'll put it up. Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of the innumerable details and has brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a source of history. So just from an accuracy viewpoint. A renowned Jewish archaeologist, Nelson, and I think it's Gluick is the way you uh, say his name. Uh, he says this. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements of the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. Oxford historian A.H., and I think it's South, I'm not sure, Sace or South, says, time after time, the assertions of the skeptical criticism have been disproved by archaeological discovery, events, and personages that were confidently pronounced to be mythical have been shown to be historical. 
And the older writers have turned out to have been better acquainted with what they were describing than the modern critic who has flouted them. Extra-biblical writings, another very important thing. I'm going to later come back to a very important writing of one who's not writing Scripture, but wrote as a contemporary to the, to the time of Jesus, just right at the time of Jesus. Uh, his name Flavius Josephus, but I'll say what Dr. Jeffrey Brashears writes. Very intriguing, very respectable uh, person, uh, Jeffrey. Viewed merely as an ancient text, it would be regarded by all serious and honest scholars as probably the most reliable historical text of the ancient world. So just the historical reliability and the first quote we made, I think it's an important one to think about. You know, you don't really have to prove that the Bible is inerrant and all this stuff. You don't have to prove that to give it warrant of credibility if you can say it is an accurate description of history, the events of history, and so forth. So let's look, number two, at the Bible's scientific reliability. Uh, Brashears writes this way. Not only does the Bible support modern cosmology, including an instantaneous creation and the constant expansion of the universe, but it did so more than 3,000 years ago in stark contrast to all other ancient cosmological theories and long before Moses and other writers of the text would have known the truth about such a phenomenon. Indeed, the Bible describes features of the universe that would not be dis discovered until recent times. The knowledge is only explicable in terms of supernatural revelation. Doesn't prove anything, obviously. Now, you realize that science is, uh, is now admitting that there is an outside power to start the universe. That was just recently that that's come up, that now they're saying, well, it has to be an outside power. It used to, well, maybe there was just this, that, and the other that existed somehow, and then this happened. But now they're saying, no, there has to be some source of energy or power that made this happen. There's no evidence to show living creatures reproduce outside their own kind. Uh, agnostic, listen to this, agnostic scientist, Stephen Jay Gould. This is how he writes. Species exhibit no directional change during their tenure on earth. They appear in the fossil record looking much the same as when they finally disappeared. I like to think of it this way. Get away from the quotes for a minute. I like to think of it this way. People are always asking me, well, what about, what about the issue of creation evolution? That's the big one. I remember a man that I was meeting with, and uh, it happened to be that uh, some buddies of mine who were good friends of this man named John, and said, I want, you to, I want you to get with this guy. I want you to meet with him, and he's just a, he's a, he's a challenging guy to Christianity. I mean, he just really is strongly opposed to Christianity, but would love for you to get to meet him and know him. He said, would you play golf if we can get a golf game together? I said, sure. So we meet to play golf, and they put me in a different cart so it wouldn't be too suspicious and he wouldn't be too anxious, you know. And so we play nine holes. We get through the nine holes. We're at the break. We're just grabbing something to drink and about to head out to the tenth hole. And he says, hey, you mind walking this next, nine, uh, next hole with me? And I said, no, I'd be happy to. He says, good. He had his big cigar and he's just strutting down. He says, you know what? I don't like these hell, fire, and brimstone churches that exist. You know that? I hate them. I said, well, I, I could understand that kind of statement. I said, uh, 
and kind of tell me what are you talking about? Why are you bring that up? He says, because your church is a hellfire and brimstone church. I said, really, you think our church is a hellfire and brimstone church? He said, I know it is. I said, how do you know that? He said, I've been there before. I came one time, and it was hellfire and brimstone. I said, well, I'm really not sure, you know, why you would think that. I'd love to have that discussion. If you ever be open to having lunch, I'd love to talk. He said, I'd be happy to have lunch. So we meet for lunch. And so I had the opportunity to show the little diagram that I showed last week. And he got enamored. He said, hey, I'd like to meet with you for four weeks. I don't buy Christianity at all. And I said, why do you not buy it? He said, for one simple reason. It's a proven fact. Science has proven evolution. And the Bible, I know, it says the world was created. Okay? I said, well, that's an interesting discussion. Do you want to talk about that for a few minutes? And he said, sure. And I said, after I shared a few things, but I said, you know why I personally, you know why I personally believe that there's a creation instead of an evolution? And I gave some data and scientific facts to kind of help support the thought. But I said, you know the big issue five, I don't believe, so why not? I said, because there's no such thing as design without a designer. You think about that. I took my iPhone out. I said, you see this iPhone? I said, imagine that we were 100, 200 years ago, and this thing was laying there on a beach near the water. And you pick this thing up, and there's no such thing as electronics as we know. Nothing like this. And all of a sudden, you pick this thing up, and you look at it, and you go, wow. And you hit a button, and a picture comes up, and numbers up at the top, and you realize... It's the time of day. That is amazing. You hit another button and there are pictures coming up over it. And you go, wow. But no one anywhere, nowhere could ever come up with a reason that this thing could exist. No one claims existence, nothing. But you find it and you look at it. What is the likelihood that you would ever say, you know what? That thing just came into existence over time washed up from the water somehow, and here it is. And then I was able to share some detail about the human cell. And before long, his mouth was falling wide open. I said, you know what? This little phone, it doesn't compare to the human body. In no comparison whatsoever. Now, in my opinion, when I see design, I have to believe there's a designer. He said, I ain't buying. I'm not buying. He said, well, good. That's your business. That's the best I can offer you, so you've at least investigated a little bit. And he wanted to meet four weeks to investigate, so we go through our time together. We get to the end of four weeks. He said, this has been one of the most helpful things I've ever done. Very good. But he says, I don't buy any of it. <laughs> I said, well, that's your business. Your business. I don't know if it was a month or two months later. I get a phone call. He was on international business travel. And he calls me. And this is what he says. He says, Randy, I'm sitting on my balcony looking at one of the most amazing mountain ranges in the world. And I have to tell you, I just gave my life to God. 
And now I know there has to be a designer to create this kind of design. Doesn't mean he's accurate. Doesn't mean it's right. But now you talk to this man passionate about the things of God. And he will tell you, you know what the big issue for me was? I didn't want to believe it. That was the bigger issue. But I think we open ourselves up. We have to say, okay, what about this whole thing about design? I say all that because I know many of us here go, well, if the Bible's wrong about one thing, it's wrong about anything. And that's the one that so many capture and say, I know it's creation or evolution. Therefore, I have to dismiss the whole Bible. Don't jump there too far. One other thing, if I can say about the creation issue, I would say this to many people I've asked the question, have you ever read one or perhaps two books from a very intelligent, reputable scientist who is a creationist who tells why they're a creationist? Have you ever read such a book? I have yet to meet one person that I'm talking to in this, not that there aren't people that have, certainly I know there are, but I haven't met any yet who have already read two reputable ones or two people that are fighting for the, the realities of what they believe. And I say this, I may be wrong. I don't believe that when you read their books that you would necessarily become a creationist, but I'll tell you this, I think you would have incredible suspicion about your own views of some kind of evolution. I think you'd all of a sudden say, wow, I did not know all that stuff. So I would encourage you, if that's an issue for you, you might want to read some, and we can help you get the right things to read if you're interested in something like that. Let's look at the next, number three, the historicity of the resurrection. Now I'll come back to this Flavius Josephus. Uh, he was a, he was a uh, Jewish uh, priest and historian. He was a noted historian. You can go to the university systems today and you will hear Flavius Josephus, highly respected and quoted, uh, the author of the War of Antiquities. Many of you are familiar with that writing. And uh, this is what he said. Now, I put some underlined in here because there is some thought that maybe it can't be proven that this was in the original. The part that's not underlined, there's no debate about it. It says, about this time, there lived Jesus. By the way, he was not a follower of Jesus. Keep that in mind. About this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher as such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standards standing amongst us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared to them restored to life, for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. So there should be no debate. This is just a historical writer that everyone seems to, you know, and he lived, I think, two, 20 or 30 years after the time of Jesus. So it was the same general timeline. And, and so there should not be debate about the reliability of the person that there was a Jesus who lived. And this was his statement about, uh, about him. The, uh, the other important, I think, thing to add to the historicity of the resurrection you had these disciples that were so committed to following Jesus. But once he died, they were, 
beginning to scatter. There was like a, a, a fear component that they were showing some real issues of question. You might know the account of Peter and what happened when he denied Jesus three times. But it's after the resurrection that everything changed. And now the historical record, not biblical record, but the historical records that we have give evidence to most all, if not all, of the, of the uh, apostles or the 12 disciples, as they're called. They died a martyr's death. If they had not believed in the resurrection, I think they would have said, all this is off, guys. Hey, hey, this whole thing was presumed upon that he was, he was God. And uh, no evidence now. He's still a dead man. But there was none of that. So just an important point. Number four of our six, the Bible's united theme. Just to put it this way, 1,500 years, the Bible record spreads over that amount of time, 40 authors from uh, three different uh, languages, uh, different continents and cultures, but the absence of contradictions. Now, again, I know that some people are going to say, oh, I'll show you some contradictions, but I'm not saying that there are no contradictions. I don't personally believe there are. It doesn't mean there are none. But when I hear people who tell me over and over, but what about all the contradictions of the Bible? I love just saying to them, bring the, to our next lunch. When we get together, bring one or two of those contradictions and let's, let's look at them. And I've had some brought to me that I go, ooh, that's a good one. I don't know about it. But as I go and research and study, I come back with something that certainly, you know, convinces me. Whether it convinces them or not, I don't know. But I just say this. All of these contradictions that we always hear about are a lot more talked about than I think reality. Number five, the, uh, the Bible's fulfilled prophecies. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament referring to Jesus when he would come, including this. And this is over hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. He would be born in Bethlehem. His descendants would uh, uh, be a descendants of David. He would be a descendant of David. Uh, betrayed, he would be betrayed by a friend. He would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, his hands and feet would be pierced, he'd be crucified with thieves, and he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. Uh, amazing that that many different 300 such as these that told about this person, Jesus, and what would be happening before uh, he was ever even born. The mathematical probability, I was a math major, and the mathematical probability is incredible. It would be taking eight with 17 zeros after it. I don't know if you have any idea how much that is. But I'm going to put it this way, as a mathematician, it's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. All right. Number six, uh, the, Bible's, uh, manu the Bible's manuscripts, uh, preservation. Uh, many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls the, in 1947, the, the leading discovery of any amount of biblical literature at one time. And uh, the oldest manuscripts prior to that time uh, dated back to the 9th century A.D., now, that's 900 years, all right? So we don't have manuscripts back to the earliest days, which is going to be the last thing I want to, to address. But we have now, a 1,000 years prior, the Qumran scroll, uh, uh, scroll discovery uh, dated a 1,000 years earlier. So that's uh, a lot of difference there. All but Esther was found in, the, in all these... Um, of various discoveries, and it is virtually uh, a duplicate of what we have today. Now, in one chapter of the book of Isaiah, 166 words, they had one fragment with that, 
Only one word was changed. It was three letters within the word that didn't change the meaning of the text whatsoever. So there were some alterations, which says, ah, I don't care. There are some alterations. So you say it's an errant word. How do you describe that? Before I answer, let me at least tell you this, that if you take other ancient literature, such as literature from Plato, 1,200 years later, we have seven manuscripts. Nobody doubts that it's his. Aristotle, 1,400 years later, seven manuscripts. The New Testament, same general time period between 12 and 1,400 years later, 14,000 manuscripts. And so the number of manuscripts, amazing. So here's what I would say before we get into the other questions. But if I were to try to describe, well, how can you Christians say, or answer the question, how can you Christians say that this Bible written so many years ago could still be accurate today? Here's how it works. I'm going to put one mark up here. And that mark is going to represent what's called the autograph, all right? The autograph is the first writing of the book. There's 66 books in the Bible, Old and New Testament combined. That says there are 66 autographs. With me? We have none of the autographs. Ah, that sounds to be a challenge to the Christian faith. Well, we don't have any, so you can't, you can't show the original. So how do you know that anything that came after the autograph could be accurate. Well, first of all, I can't say why there are no autographs. Why didn't God let the autographs remain? My best judgment says this. If there were autographs, the Christian community would build shrines. They would be worshiping it. All kind of bad things would be happening that God would hate. But I don't know the reason, but there are none. But here's what happened. This particular autograph would then be copied Let's say three times. So I'm going to put three lines here, meaning the copies, okay? Those three copies are transcriptions. Transcription. They're just taking what they have and they're copying it. The people that did this were called scribes. Scribes literally means copyist. Their job was to copy. You hear about the scribes and the Pharisees when you read through John. Scribes, that was their original job, was to just transcribe. Now, once they would do that, it would take a long time to be able to do these three. You know why? Because there were the laws of the scribe. And I'm going to just make this up to make it simple, to, to make the point. If they were trying to copy and it said, the boy went to the store, and that's what they had to copy... They would do, not this, but this is the idea. They would do T-H-E, 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 T-H-E. And then they would see E-H-T, 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 B-O-Y, B-O-Y, blah, 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 blah. And then T-H-E, B-O-Y, T-H-E. And then they had to go back. The law of the scribe was just, I can't imagine anybody doing it. I mean, can you imagine doing that all day? But that was their job. And the law of the scribe was so detailed that it was... To keep any mistakes from ever coming in. Well, would there still be mistakes? Yeah. Either by accident or by people who say, I want to change this and some bad scribe gets in there. So yeah, there's going to be some alterations that come along. 
But then this one was sent to another community, and a scribe there would do three of it, and then three of it, and then three of it. And this just keeps going on and on and on and on and on, keep going and going and going and going until we get down to modern times. So now we have these, as I'm going to say, 10,000 copies at a particular time. And we look at these copies, and now we've got 10,000? Wow, a lot of copies. So we look at those 10,000, and we say, how many of them are identical. And we find out that there are 900, let's say, and 20, just to make a number, 920 that are identical. But there are 80 that are called variant readings. You with me? Variant readings, meaning they're alterations from the other 920. And so instead of, let's say it's John 3:16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, whatever. There were Let's say 20 of them that said God so loved the Jew that he gave his only begotten son. Well, that's a variant reading. It might be another 20 that say God so loved the Gentile that he gave his only begotten son. Or maybe it was, I don't know, a different word somehow. But it adds up to be 80 different variant readings. So as I studied Hebrew and Greek, you would know that in the Greek and Hebrew Bible, you could look over the margin of certain study Bibles, and you could actually see variant readings, and it was given a grade, A, B, C, or D, a lot of variant readings, very few or whatever, and then you can go further and look and see what are the variant readings if you really wanted to study it. But the idea was, let's figure out what this originally said. And so if a Christian tells you they believe the Bible is God's word and without error, you can challenge them correctly and say, you're saying that you believe the autograph is infallible without error and that through a scientific process we can be convinced what that original said because we can now look at all of these variant readings and the good news is where there are variant readings they are so minor they are so insignificant and that's what the 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 Dead Sea Scrolls showed in fact everybody was like wow a thousand years we're jumping up now a thousand years in time Now we're going to see all of how it's all changed. And it blew everybody away. Oh, there were a few, but they were little variant readings. And so if there is a God, could God preserve his own record? Well, if he's God, yes. But now the bigger question is, do we believe Jesus is who he claimed to be? Last thing on this. Jesus could only look back to the Old Testament. Jesus believed in the authority of the Old Testament because he quoted it as God's truth. That's important. He thought it was. So now we can take the study to Jesus and say, do we think Jesus is who he claimed to be? That's why everybody I meet with, I say, look, what I'm going to help you do is really answer one question. Do you believe Jesus? Remember the three, liar, lunatic, or Lord? That's really your decision to be making. And again, if you think he's a liar lunatic, you're a fool to follow him. And it's your call what you believe. But if you truly believe he's who he claimed to be, the Lord of the universe, then we'd be the fool of fools not to follow him. And that's what happened to me when I said, I've got to find answers I want to see. And I go, hey, I've become convinced. Can I be wrong? Yeah. But I'd be a fool not to follow what I truly, truly believe. So let's keep that all in perspective as we do our evaluation, okay?
Good enough. Now, we're going to have time for some questions on that and anything else, but uh, I want to go to this Gospel of John for a quick minute. Let's look at a few of the questions. I'm just going to look at four of the questions that are in there and give you a quick answer. Now, again, we're just looking at the first five chapters, and uh, the first question is, uh, to whom does the Word refer? Keep your hands up if you don't have a copy, and we've got several over here in this section here. Okay. Um, to whom does the word refer? And this is in chapter 1, verse 1, and then also again in verse 14. And then it asks the question, why is the name word used? Now, I'm not going to interplay with the congregation or with the, the audience here, but I do want you to, to, to think about this. Who does the word refer to? And and if you do much reading, it doesn't have to read very closely, you'll see that it refers to Jesus, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. Now here's the second question. Why is Word used to describe Jesus? Here be the answer. Imagine that you and I have a lunch appointment, and we've never met before. And we have a mutual friend that wants us to meet. And so I happen to know what you look like through my friend. And you know what I look like through our mutual friend. And so I happen to be sitting in the booth at the restaurant when all of a sudden the perfect description of what I think you should look like shows up. And I kind of do like this. And you go, yeah. And so you come walk and sit down and to have lunch. And I raise my hand like, hello. And you raise your hand and say, like that. And then we just sit there and look at each other and kind of stare at each other for a minute. And I go like this. And you go. <laughs> and, and then we order our meal. And, and the waiter leaves and brings our food. And about the time we finish eating, we look up at each other. And I go. You go. Mm-hmm. And then check comes. We sign it. And then I go like that. And you go like that. And we leave. And then you run in to our mutual friend. Hey, did you, did you get re- lunch with Randy yet? I had lunch with him just today, in fact. Oh, really? Did you get to know him? No, I didn't. I, I didn't get to know him. Oh, you had lunch with him, but you didn't get to know him? What do you mean? Well, you see, not a what? Not a word was spoken. Jesus is called the Word because here's God the Father. Here is us. The triune God in us, and we are separated. We are separated from each other. We can't know each other. And so he says, okay, I'll send my son, and the son will be the word, which will be the connection between the two. It's through him that we would know each other. That was the whole idea. Let's move to a a second question. Let's go down to number three. Uh, Why was Christ called the Lamb of God? A lot of insight comes from this one. Some of you might know the story of Old Testament Israel, how they were held in captivity by the Egyptians, Pharaoh. Do you remember the story? And you might know the story of the plagues. You've seen the television program or something that kind of outlines the story of the Bible. And, 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 you know, Pharaoh is holding on to them as slaves, and the the Israelites are just, they're being just whooped by them. You know, it's horrible. And so God says, okay, Moses, you go tell Pharaoh that, let them go. And uh, Pharaoh said, I ain't letting you go. He said, okay, here comes plague number one, two, three. Remember, there are a bunch of plagues. 
Well, at the end of the plagues, there's a tenth plague. They never would let him go. Finally, there's a tenth plague, and it was that the, all the male firstborn would be killed unless you put blood over the lintel, the, the doorpost of your home. And the death angel would come by, and if there was blood, pass by, pass right over, pass right over that, that house, and the firstborn would live. No blood, you die. Well, Pharaoh and his people, they don't believe God and all this stuff, and so they're not going to put blood. But God's people were told how to do it. They were to take a little lamb, and here's what's interesting about the lamb. The lamb had to be, one, a male lamb. Number two, had to be without blemish, meaning it couldn't be eye knock, you know, put out, lame leg, you know, whatever. And can you imagine the Jewish father saying to his little boy, okay, go get, your, go get that little lamb that's in the, that little male that's so perfect in there. Oh, daddy, 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 no, 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 that's my, that's my pet. I love him. He's the sweetest one. He's the only one that doesn't bite. No, we got to have him. They come in, and then they take a knife, and they literally cut the jugular, kill the animal and cut the jugular, and they put the blood in a little basin. And then what they would do is they would say, okay, all of us, let's just come and, and share our sins. What have we been doing that has been displeasing to God? And then they would confess it, certainly not covering all, but the things that come to their mind. And then they would do a, a ritual ceremony. They would dip their hands in the blood and wash their hands because... In the book of Leviticus, which they followed as their order of, of living, and it says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin, and that the life of the flesh is in the blood, and therefore, you have to have blood to take your sin. So they would wash their hands as if that little lamb died for us and our sins. Well, that lamb didn't die for any sins, not whatsoever. But, you know, they were then to take the blood and put it on the lintel, of the door, and then the death angel would pass by. The Jewish people to this day have what's called the Passover. Well, then Jesus is seen by John the Baptist, if you read the text, and John sees Jesus at a distance and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So that's why he's called the Lamb of God, all right? Number five, let's jump to number five, and then we'll do number six, and that'll be it. What did Jesus mean when he told Nicodemus he must be born again? You remember the story, Nicodemus comes along, and he says, Hey, teacher, tell me, what, what does it take to, uh, to go to heaven, basically? How do you get in right relationship with God? He says, Well, here's the thing. You have to be born again. And so that term now has become very noted in fact, it is a repulsive word, isn't it not? Born again. And the reason is because a bunch of idiots have been running around all over the place and uh, calling themselves born again and doing really, really, really stupid things, right? And so we go, if that's a born again person, I don't want to be born again. Well, trying to, you know, push that aside for a little bit. This is a, a term that Jesus used, and it's a good term. Uh, we just have to take it in the present context, you know, and, and divide it out a little bit. But what does it mean to be born again? I love to ask this question. I'm going to ask you not to feed back and give me an answer, but just answer to yourself. I love to do this with people. I'll say, let me, um, let's put three options here. 
I'm going to say option number one. These are three boxes if you're in the back and can't quite see. On the, the first one, I'm going to give you three options to tell me how you would describe yourself right now. On first, I'll put the little sign for Christian. There's a Christian. You say, I am a Christian. Or you could say, I am not a Christian. Or number two, I am a Christian. Or your third alternative is, I am a, I'll put B, a born again Christian. There are your three options. Now I would say, which would you say? And I meet with guys. I meet with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of guys doing this. And I hear a lot of people saying, I'm not a Christian as we start meeting. I say, good. You, you kind of got where you are. That's, that's important. I have a lot of people who say, uh, I would say I'm a Christian. I say, okay, it's interesting. You said you're a Christian, but you, you're, you're not a born-again Christian, but you're a Christian. That's right. I'm not born again, but I'm a Christian. Okay? And then some people, not a lot of them, but I'll meet with some guys and say, I'm a born-again Christian. All right? So that's fine. But if somebody says to me, I am a Christian, I'm not born again, but I am a Christian, then I want to take it to the next level. And I say, let's assume that you're married. If they're not, if they are, I say, okay, imagine that your wife is wanting to be pregnant. And so she is, she's going to be so anxious. She wants to find out this month, am I pregnant? And so she gets a, a pregnancy test or she goes to the doctor or whatever. And, and she's now so excited to find out, hopefully she's pregnant. She comes home and you say, well, honey, what'd you find out? She could tell you one of three things. She could say, well... I am not pregnant, not P, not pregnant. She could come home and say, I'm pregnant, I'll put a P there. But I asked my friends, what would you say if your wife came home and she said, well, guess what? I found out that I am semi-pregnant. You'd go, what? Yeah, it's not that I'm not pregnant, and I'm certainly not pregnant, you know, but I'm, I'm kind of semi-pregnant. You would say to that person, I don't think you quite understand pregnancy. You either are or you aren't. I say, do you understand this, that Christian and born-again Christian are synonymous? This is a way of describing a real Christian. They're born again. If you're born again, it means that you're a Christian. You're one and the same. Again, throw out the horrible, you know, things that people are, are doing in the name of being born again. Throw that away. But we want to know, hey, I need to make sure that I'm born again. And I'll tell you this. I'll give you my word. I will do the very best that I can in number four. When we get to book number four, it is my job to make sure you really understand this thing, what it means to be born again. We will make sure you understand that. But Jesus, if he's God, he said... You must be born again. One last question, and that is, number six, what did Jesus say was necessary to have eternal life? If you read that very closely, you know that it says, you must believe. That's the key word. You have to believe. Now, it's important to understand that the Greek language that most of the New Testament is written in, the, uh, uh, virtually all of the New Testament written in, when you look at the Greek language, there is incredible detail to the language where we might have one word to describe believe there's multiple words 
we might use the word love. There's multiple words. And if you know the history of the Greek language, Constantine, what he was doing, he wanted to have something so specific that no one would say, well, but what do you mean by that? They wanted it to be detailed. So this word believe, interestingly enough, says to put one's trust in. Very important to know that. To put one's trust in. And the best way I can describe it, I don't know if it's a true story. I've heard it as if it is. doesn't matter. But picture someone at Niagara Falls who's a tightrope walker. And they're walking across a portion of, you know, the, the Niagara Falls. And they would, apparently if the story's true, he'd walk across, come back, and people would throw money in the hat and applaud. And so he'd done that, and everybody was applauding. He says, how many of you believe that I can take a wheelbarrow, and he points to a wheelbarrow, and I can go across and come back, not using my balancing beam, but a wheelbarrow instead. And all hands go up in belief. So he does it. Goes across, comes back, everybody applauds. Then he says, now, how many of you believe that I can put somebody in the wheelbarrow, walk across, and come back? And all hands go up. And he says, well, sir, would you, would you please get in the, uh, the wheelbarrow here? Would, would you jump in the wheelbarrow for a few minutes? He said, no, 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 I'm not getting in that wheelbarrow. <laughs> he said, well, I'm confused. I thought you said you believe. And the man says, oh, I believe, as he points to his head. But I don't believe when he points to his heart. This word is the word to put one's trust in what I believe. So keep in mind, when this thing says that you have to believe, he's saying you have to have trust. You have to trust yourself to him. Now, again, book four will come to the point that we'll address that in great detail. But just keep that in mind. Uh, questions seven and eight I won't go through, but I will say this. How many people have told me through the years, well, you know, Jesus didn't even say he was God. Just check those two out, and there'll be several more coming in the book of John. There was no doubt Jesus repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly said in different ways, I and the Father one. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. I am God. He just says it in so many different expressions. So that's all I have just to give you some data to think about. But now it's time to, uh, to ask some questions. So we've got about 20 minutes for that. We've divided our time out pretty, pretty good here. We want to make sure that you have the time to ask again I'm not going to labor. If, any, if there, a group never has questions, if I meet with somebody, they say, I don't have any questions, I don't try to pull questions out of them. I say, we're here to only answer your questions. So if you don't have any, that's fine. But if you do, we want to answer them. We'd love to take them first from here. I think we had 25 questions that came in over the uh, 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 screen uh, for us. So uh, we've got plenty of questions, so, but if you don't want to ask them, you don't have to, but I'd love to start with the floor. Anybody have a question you'd like to ask here? All right, right up here in the front. Good, good start here. Um, so in Mark 2.26, Jesus, he's talking to some Pharisees, and he names the wrong high priest. He says, like, oh, when Abiathar was the high priest, and in the story he's quoting, the high priest was actually Ahimelech, Abiathar's father. So how do you reconcile that with the inerrancy of scripture i have no answer because i don't know i've never even heard that or, or seen that so I'm, that's a new one to me but it's a good one if you will uh if somebody will write that down we'll try to look it up for you and try to try to see an answer but i've never even 
I've never even heard that, uh, that uh, question. So that's a good one, but I don't, I don't know. I would just be making up words if I said something. So good question, though. Good question. Um, so what of the Nephilim? They were mentioned before in um, Genesis, back the when Nephilim. they were saying yeah. mm-hmm. when the angels came down and created abominations with the humans. Right. And then there came the flood, and then they were mentioned again. Right. How did they survive the flood if they were supposedly not on the ark? Well, there's a lot of debate, first of all, about the Nephilim. What really does that mean? Does it mean that they are people who have married and come into a union with those outside the people of God, or was it an angelic type of, of being that there was? That's, and that's the huge debate. Nobody really knows the answer. And so I really would just have to speculate to say how that would happen. It would depend. If it's somebody who is marrying outside, then, okay, that explains it. If it's angelic, I don't even know if I, I'm not really following that myself, but that's one theory that it's an angelic type of marriage. So it, it, it's such debate, nobody really knows, as far as I know, who the Nephilim really are. So again, you, and, and anytime you get a question that I, I'm, I tell you, there are a lot more brilliant people than me who've studied every detail. There are apologists. I'm a pastor. I, I, I'm an apologist, but not my full time job by any means. But uh, again, when you hear an answer like that, I'd have my little tea ledger. If you were here last week, put your little tea ledger and say, ah, they can't answer that one. But again, we can look that up and we'll see if we can find out something that might help you there. All right? Very good. We'll see what we can find out at least. But uh, I'm not sure we're going to get an answer on that one because there's just, I think, all debate. As I've studied the Nephilim, you just go, I don't know. There's not enough there to tell you much detail. Good though. Uh-huh. Why even make the argument that the Bible is infallible? What does it accomplish for us? If you make that argument, you have so many questions you have to answer. Two were brought up. I could list hundreds, literally hundreds more, because I spend a lot of time conversing with atheists. Hundreds more. Mm -hmm. Some things just make no sense if you really dig into them. And God doesn't say... I'm going to give you a book, and this book is going to guide you for the next few millennia. Yeah. He said, Jesus says, I'm going to send the Spirit. Why isn't that our guide? Why do we have to argue about whether creationism six day is accurate or not? It really doesn't affect our eternity, but we spend so much time arguing about it. for what? And then why, would, why does God torment people for eternity? Why doesn't he just make them vanish, disappear? What kind of sadistic person would torment someone for eternity? We have to go on and on exploring these things. What is the point? All right, of the last marriage? portion of that I'm going to address next week. So I'm going to hold the last portion. In terms of what difference, why do we spend so much time? First of all, I bet if I ask for a raise of hands, how many people have heard anybody even address why Christians think the Bible is God's word and infallible and arguing that point? you don't have many people at all even raising their hands. So I don't think many people are even talking about it much today. I think a lot of the reasons, because a lot of Christians don't really know why we believe, which I think is insane. Either don't believe it is, or come up and understand why you believe it is. Uh, Let it be a conviction that you really own. But I can tell you from me personally, I am so glad that I do believe, without shelving my brain, maybe wrong, but I do believe the Bible's God's word. And I'll tell you, when I read something like, and I will be with you forever, that means something to me. If I say, well, it's not valid. Who knows? Somebody wrote that. And who knows if it's right or wrong? There's no way of knowing. Then I go, I wonder if God's with me always. 
I have a belief he is with me. Why? Because he said so. Well, how do you know so? Because I believe the Bible says so. Well, why does that mean anything? Because I believe it's infallible. That's why I think it's important. Again, it doesn't mean I'm right, but it's why it's important. And I think people who don't try to figure it out, they're losing out big time on what they can. Because if they, if they don't, they haven't lost a thing. If they don't believe it is, okay, it's not. And if I think God's with me, he is. If I don't think he is, he's not. I don't know. But I'd much rather know that, hey, I, since I do believe it, I'm going to hang on to things like that. That's, that becomes very important. But good question. Good question. All right? Thanks okay. for doing this. This is really brave. Um, no, some people say it's stupid, but uh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, the, the construction of the cannon, yeah, ultimately we had final cuts with a bunch of different documents. Could you talk about how we came up with that and then why that's credible as opposed to other documents that may or may not have credibility? Yeah, the, uh, the question of... of Canicity, who, what is really to be included in the Bible? Do you understand that there have been many different uh, councils and so forth that have debated and discussed it and so forth and so on? But here's what people don't understand. Most Christians don't understand, don't believe, or, or don't really have this understanding. They think that there were some councils that came along, and the councils, it's their authority, and they determined that this will be and this will not be, and therefore it is. And all these different reasons. The reality is this, Christianity has said only things that really are to be considered in the canon or in what we call the, the books of the Bible are those that have forever been received from the earliest days of the church. They were received and therefore they are. There were a number of different things that they, criteria that, uh, are used that were believed then by those that believed then. And so they said, this is it. There are no more. And what the various uh, councils come along to affirm that this really is who Christianity, or this is what Christianity believes to be in the canon of Scripture, just these. There is debate over time. But the reality is we should be looking at it saying, no, it's no man's job after it's given did the earliest apostles who were with Jesus, the earliest people, did they believe, did they not? That should be, and that's how it was determined what would be included and what would not. But there is debate about that. Certainly there is debate. Good question. How could Jesus be the Son of God if Jesus and God existed together from the beginning? And uh, if Jesus wasn't created by God? Okay, how can Jesus be uh, God? It's the... Uh, you're familiar with the term the Trinity, uh, the Trinity, uh, which is the triune God. You've got to understand every Christian, every Christian has to say, this is beyond our understanding. Three persons, one God. Three persons, the Father, one person. The Son, a person, the Holy Spirit. And, keep this in mind, equal in power, substance, and glory. Very important words. Equal in power, substance, and glory. Now, God. How does a creation understand the creator? It's, it's beyond. Uh, there's been a great truth that I learned years ago, as a, and I used the math of my background to kind of put this in perspective. 
and this will take me just a minute, but I think this will be worthwhile. In math, we talk about something that is finite by line. We use a line, all right? There's time and space in line, right? Now, question, do you, when you think in terms of that which is infinite, that is different than finite, right? Infinite goes forever and ever and ever and ever. This is time which was created, and you realize space was created. If we believe in creation, this is the Christian answer. We believe in time and space created. Now, we are on time, right? Time and space. That's who we are. Now, anything that's beyond that, that's not finite, we'll put as a dot. You can't even see that dot. But we'll put this as a dot out here, all right? Now, God would be dot. He's infinite. We would be the creation. We would be finite. I was debating with a Ph.D., 25, 30 years my senior. I was just a, a, a young student, and I was coming at, no, I can't believe that. And I, don't, I know the Bible says it, but I don't agree. I don't think that can, I just don't see it, and it just doesn't make sense to me. And I was a Christian, but I was fighting against some of the stuff that I just, I, I couldn't get it. So this is what he said to me. He said, let me ask you this. Is, let's let this board represent God's knowledge, all right? That which is truly infinite. So if this board represented that which was infinite, how far would this board go in all four directions? And I went, hmm, well, if it's infinite, it would go on forever and ever. He said, okay. So let's use this board to represent that which is infinite. I said, okay. And he says, do you understand what an understatement that is? That this board could be something that's representing something that goes forever and ever and ever? I said, yeah, yeah, okay. He said, all right, let me ask you this. When you think of something that, let's take the knowledge of the world, all right? The knowledge of all the world. Let's let that represent every person's knowledge all combined. And he made a little circle like that on the board. And he says, now, do you understand that if this board goes forever and ever and ever in all four directions, then that you shouldn't even be able to see. It would be a speck that could not be seen. So I've really understated that case. I said, okay. Then he said, let me do this. Let me take this little circle, which is about a fifth of the circle. Let's say this is the most brilliant human's knowledge of anybody who's ever, ever, ever lived. Presumably somebody alive today that has the most knowledge of all time put in. But there's no one person that has a fifth or a sixth of the knowledge of every person of the world. Would you agree? I go, yeah, yeah. So he says, I've really, I've really understated this case, right? Making that way too big. It would be a speck. I said, okay. And then he took, then it was a chalkboard. He took a right in the middle and he took a little dot there. And he says, now this is going to be my biggest overstatement. This represents your knowledge compared to that person. That's <laughs> okay, I got it. And then he erased everything else and he left the dot there, which you can't even see. 
But he said, remember, this board goes forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and this dot is way, 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 way too big. He said, let me ask you something. Do you think it's possible that there's something that exists out here that will not fit on your dot and you will not ever understand? He said, as a Christian, I was a Christian, he said to me, here's what I would ask myself. Do I believe in the authority of the Bible? Do I or do not? And if you do, then do not evaluate what you believe in it based on what it makes sense to you or not. Well, there are certain things, Jeremiah says, that God has hidden various things from our understanding. We'll never understand. Uh, Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and my thoughts higher than your ways and your thoughts. Wow, I believe that. So when you get to the Trinity, if somebody says, you explain the Trinity where it really makes sense and everybody, you can say, well, it's like water and it's like, uh, you know, it's like gas and it's like ice and it well that's not true because you have to take one substance and change it to the other that's not true the father son and holy spirit exists together at all times so they're three persons they're one godhead they're equal in power substance and glory and that's the best the church through its history has ever been able to describe the thing called the Trinity. It's three persons one God equal in power substance and glory so beyond that Oh, yeah, it's, it's a faith. It's a faith thing. And you know what? If I'm a seeker and I go, you mean it's by faith? Yeah, I don't buy it then. Hey, I wouldn't buy it. But at the same time, just remember, there's a whole lot that can exist out here. Anybody would, I think, agree that we'll never fully understand or comprehend. I would just say this, what the guy told me. He said, I'm going to give you this advice, Randy. You find out what you see to be in the Scripture and if you believe it's consistently teaching what you see in the Bible, I'd hold on to that. And I'd say, I'm going to trust that it's right. Now, here's my story, and you, you don't know me. So whether I'm integrous or not, you don't know. But I will say this. I have held on to that belief since I was in, in my, my, my school days. And I'm telling you, every single, and I, I cannot give you one exception. I'm being very honest here. I can't give you one exception when I went away from what I saw the scripture teaching that I found that I was glad I did it. I found out I got hurt, something went wrong. I realized, oops, that, that hurt me badly by not. And every time that I have done the other and said, okay, I'm going to accept what God has to say. I'm gonna, in the Bible, talks about the triune God. So I'm going to trust in that. But whatever it's been, I've benefited when I have, and I've been hurt when I didn't. That doesn't mean that you will be or anybody else. But I'm just saying that's my story. And I'm very glad that I have, you know, been led in that way. But I would always be thinking in terms of, remember, we're line. We're not dot. And therefore, you can't quite understand what's on that dot. All right? Yes, thank you, Randy. Um, this has always bothered me and maybe other people too. But uh, it is said that we have free will. Mm -hmm. But God knows the final and ultimate answer to what it, our free will will be. So do we really have free will? Yeah. I've, it's always stymied me that. Yeah. Well, good question on free will. Here's what I would say about that. Yes. According to the scripture, I believe, and again, I, I'm only going to give you what the Bible, I'm not going to just tell you that here's my opinion. Uh, here's what I see the Bible saying. And through history, I think this has been the answer of scripture. 
yes, nothing in Scripture says that man does not have a free will. He does have a free will. Meaning, never does God coerce us to go against what we want to do. We have the freedom to do anything we choose to do. That's the teaching of Scripture. All right? Now, you can talk about, and I don't want to get too far here, but God's sovereign control over all things. Here we come into mystery. I give you these words. There's contradiction, there's paradox, and there's mystery. What I suggest, you search out over time. You determine, is there really a contradiction in Scripture? Is there really a contradiction? I don't think there are. But that does not mean that we do not believe as Christians, or I don't believe, that there is biblical paradox. Biblical paradox is when two things look as if they would disagree with each other, but you cannot show that they are contradictory. They just hit us like, that just doesn't seem, but I cannot show contradiction. That's paradox, meaning it is, but we don't get it, all right? There is a lot of biblical paradox. Anybody will agree? There are paradoxes. Then there is the third category that you've got, you know, you, you've got contradiction, you've got biblical paradox, and then you've got mystery. Mystery is what we just talked about in the Trinity. That's a mystery to me. Three persons, one God. I'll never get that. That's a mystery. But I'm telling you, there's a whole bunch of mystery. And I was thinking just yesterday about something. I think they said, how in the world could this ever be? I wouldn't even believe it. That's possible. That's a mystery to me. But it means it's beyond my understanding. Black holes is a mystery to me. I don't get black holes. But I don't, I don't say they don't exist because I can't figure it out. But uh, that would be my take on it, that it's just an issue of there are going to be these. And when you say God's sovereign, and then you say, and I have free, freedom of choice, they don't contradict each other. It's just hard for us to fully comprehend. You with me in that regard? Well, I can't. I mean, you're not going to understand it. I'm not going to understand it fully. I like to think of it maybe like this. It's like a, a, a roof. And on one side of the roof, you have the word God's sovereignty. On one side of the roof, you have, you have man's freedom of choice. I can walk over here and I can understand this subject without this one. I can go over here and understand it without the other. You get up above, you look down. I think you'll, you'll understand it, you know, when we have to have more of a, a, an eternal perspective. Or to put it this way, when, when I look at, at this whole idea of the, the mysteries of God and the things that you go, I, I don't get this. I don't really understand that. That's okay with me. I go, but what I don't want to do is find a contradiction. If I find a contradiction, I want to struggle with that. I want to figure it out. And then I might want to throw away the scripture if I thought there were contradictions. That would be, but mystery and paradox. And I think this is just one that's very paradoxical. It, it's not even a mystery because we can understand either one. We just, it's a paradox. We can't put them together. Okay? Well, we, we are taking your questions. It's going to take us a while, as many as are coming in. I'm sure there'll be even more this week, and every week they'll come in, and we'll try to do all we can to, to upgrade the, the answers, you know, to the questions that you're asking. But uh, go online. I don't, can I be told now when they're going to be? Some of these will start getting online this week. So uh, I think everything comes up Tuesday afternoon on our podcast, perimeter.org, uh, slash if answers will be, you can get the, the podcast. 
And then the questions, what do they go to to get the questions? Same page, on the same exact page, so feel free to go there. All right, let me pray for you again, and then uh, next week will be a, next week is the one that will stretch your brain beyond all weeks, but uh, come and let's see where it takes us, all right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a time just to be able to ask questions, and good questions, and I pray that you would uh, give us um, as, clear, as much clarity as possible in the uh, answers to these questions, but we're just asking, if you do exist, you are God. Would you make yourself known to us? And, uh, and Lord, we just, that's all we can ask you is you would just make yourself known to us. So we thank you for this time. Bless each person here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming.